Amen. We'll take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 37 through 39 this morning. If you are visiting with us, it is our normal habit here at Prince to preach through books of the Bible. So we spent most of this year in the book of Hebrews. And Lord willing, next Sunday, I'll pick back up in Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll be there for the rest of the fall And uh, looking forward to jumping back into the book of Hebrews, but I wanted to start this year uh, with a couple of messages for us as a church uh, from John chapter 7. But before I do that, uh, I wanted to just make one quick reminder. For some of you, it'll be a reminder. For some of you that may be new here, it'll be uh, completely new for you. But one of our um, kind of convictions here at Prince, and one thing that's a little bit distinct about us, is that we don't have a children's church. We have community group, both ours, uh, but we don't have a separate place for kids to go and worship. And we do that because we want them in the room. We think it's good and right and helpful for them to be in the room. We think they need to see mom and dad worship. They need to hear the word of God, and uh, they need to sing with the people of God. So we think that's important. What that means is at this time of the year, we have a bunch of new kids in the room who have never been in big church in their life, I already took mine out during the worship. You may have seen me do that. Uh, so we have all of these uh, new children there. And, and it may be that while you're just enjoying the preaching, a kid may crawl under the seat. And uh, his parents are six rows back. That's very possible this morning. Uh, at my previous church, I had a staff member's kid who made a little makeshift slingshot and was shooting Smarties uh, at people. So if you get a Smartie in your hair, just take it and eat it. It's fine. Um, but I just, I just want to encourage you, this is a learning uh, moment for all of us as a church. So if you have one of those children around you, just be patient, encourage them. If you're feeling distracted and anxious, I assure you their parents are feeling more that way than you are, okay? Uh, we're a family, and so we want to just kind of embrace this. To which my wife is hearing all of this and saying, easy for you to say, buddy, because I'm up here. So I get that. I understand that. But uh, just uh, encourage those around you if you would. John chapter 7 is a passage that I really believe the Lord has led us to for this time in our church. Uh, There is a sense that God is moving and stirring, and I think even in our worship this morning, we feel his presence there, and that is a great responsibility. And we want this morning to receive this glorious invitation of Jesus in John 7. An invitation for us to come and to receive from him and then to be used by him. And what happens in the context of this simple invitation that God gives us A real clear vision, not just for the church, but for our lives. And we need that. Life is complex, and it feels at times that walking with Jesus can be complex, but I don't think it should be. What God wants to do from this text is just bring us back to the simplicity of pure devotion to Jesus Christ in our lives. So if you're there in John 7, verse 37, say amen. Listen to this invitation of Jesus. It says, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
There is in this text two separate invitations, I believe for us, two calls of the Lord, two ways in which the Lord, I believe, is summoning us as individuals and as a church. The first one is this. It's a call, an invitation to go after God, to go hard after God, to make our greatest pursuit above every other pursuit in all of life, Jesus Christ himself. Because he stands up and he says, if anyone, any of you are thirsty, let him come to me and, and drink. We talked about this last week. We spent our whole sermon last week on this part. But what we said is simply this. Thirst is a work of God. It is a work of a sovereign God. So if there is thirst in your heart this morning, listen, that's God at work. If you're thirsty for something, if you're longing for something, if you sense that you're not satisfied with life as it is and you feel as if something is missing, well, that's because if you don't have Jesus, if you're not walking with him, something is missing. And so the first work that God does in our heart is he begins to make us thirsty. And his intention is when he begins to stir up thirst in us, that it would not drive us to a thousand other cheap imitations, but it would drive us to Jesus. So if thirst is his work, drinking is your work. So if you're thirsty, Jesus says, come to me and, and drink from me. Drink heavily and consistently and constantly. Come drink from the never-ending wells, which is Jesus Christ. Come and drink from him through his word and through his work and through his spirit, which he is talking about here. This is an invitation for every one of us to come and to find complete fulfillment and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Our mission here at Prince is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. So we're just trying to get everyone to Jesus. Why? Because we believe that Jesus is the answer. We believe everybody needs to know Jesus and deep inside actually wants to know Jesus. But what that means is that your responsibility is to just take the next step. That God has you on some journey and your responsibility is to take that next step, whether it's to come to Christ for the first time or to take the next step in community or whatever it may be. We just want to lead you to take that next step as we choose as a church to go after God. But there's a second part to this invitation. It is not only a call to go after God, it is a call to go after people. You say, well, pastor, I just, I heard you read this text and there's nothing here about missions, nothing here about evangelism. If you were going to preach on evangelism and missions, why wouldn't you choose a text that has something a little bit more clearly about it? The reality is everything about this text is about missions and evangelism. We know that for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, just think about the context of what's happening here. We, we saw last week that in John chapter 7, at the very beginning there, it says that the Jews were trying to kill Jesus. So they already had a plot and they are already working towards finding him and taking him, imprisoning him, and killing him. That was already the plan. And so because of that, it was the time of this great feast, and they just assumed that Jesus would come to the feast, and this was a great time for them to get him, and Jesus knew this. And so when his brothers and all of the disciples went to Jerusalem, Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay back. But it tells us about halfway through the chapter that the middle of the week, Jesus decides, wait a minute, I am going to go up there. And it says he chooses to go secretly. But then we find that right after he goes, he walks into the temple and begins to preach. It is almost as if 
He can't help himself with all of the people that have come to worship, to walk into the temple and open the scroll and begin to preach as he often did. Then it says three times after that, that when they found out that he was there, three times it says they were seeking to arrest him, seeking to arrest him. So listen, he knows they're trying to kill him. He knows that they're trying to arrest him. Everyone is talking about it. His brothers, his disciples, everyone is warning him. And yet, in that moment, he stands up in front of all of the multitudes and cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So why would he bring so much attention to himself when he knew that they were trying to kill him? And the answer is simple. Because Jesus in that moment was overcome by, I believe, what the New Testament calls the zeal of the Lord. He, he looked at the multitudes of people that have come from all over the world, coming to the temple, and he watched with all of their rituals. And he saw that they were coming and they were attending, but they were never going to be satisfied if they missed the reality, which was himself. There is no possible way he could remain silent. He overflowed with love and grace and desire and longing. And so when he was overcome with all of his love and desire to see people really find life, he had to stand up and say, listen, I know you're thirsty and I'm the answer. Come and drink from me. The whole context is this heartbeat of God in which he's saying, I cannot help. Even if it costs me my life, I, I cannot help but to invite people to myself. But even more than that, it's found in the second part of Jesus' statement. So in the first part, he says in verse 37, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. But look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So out of, out of whose heart? Well, the heart of the one who believes and the heart of the one who is drinking. And so all of a sudden, we begin to get clarity on what this has to do with people, and even more so, what it is God is inviting us to. You see, Jesus does want you to be satisfied with him. Jesus knows that your life will always be empty until you're in a right relationship with him. And even as a believer, moment by moment, you will continue to thirst unless you're quenching that thirst with Jesus. You know, even believers can have some type of addictions, and the reason is, is because they're trying to find a way to satisfy their thirst with something other than Jesus. So the answer is always more of Jesus, more drinking from Jesus. So he wants that for you. But, but, but that's not the end. His vision for your life is not for you to simply be a satisfied believer. His vision for your life is that you'd be so filled with Jesus that overflowing out of your soul in a way that others around you can see is his presence. That's his vision. What Jesus is saying here is the means by which I intend to accomplish my mission of seeing every one of your neighbors and every nation come to me is through believers who are filled up with Jesus and satisfied in him. That's, that's the mission of God. That you'd be so satisfied with Jesus Christ that overflowing from your life would be his presence. This is how Jesus makes himself known. To every one of your neighbors, to every nation, Jesus makes himself known by filling his people with himself. This has always been the mission of God. 
A few years ago, I, I asked an older pastor friend of mine, I, I asked him the question that every pastor asks, and that's simply this, why is it that I can't get my people to share the gospel? Like that's, that's the thing, like that's the question for every pastor. That's, that's the most difficult thing. And we'll talk about this more in a minute, but because that's so difficult, most pastors' response is, is just to heap on more guilt, you know, because guilt always helps, right? Like this is always the way to motivate people. Let's just add more guilt to you and uh, just make you feel terrible, more terrible about yourself. But his answer was really simple. He said, I don't think it's lack of training. They have training. It's not lack of resources. They have resources. He said, I think at the end of the day, people just don't love Jesus as much as we think they do. Well, that was really convicting to me. And then he reminded me of Luke chapter six, verse 35, where it says, out of the overflow of a heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth is what your heart is full of. And if you're really in love with something, really excited about something, filled with something, it is going to come out of your mouth. And that's exactly what he's saying here. The spirit of God is like this river that you go to moment by moment and drink. And the more you drink, the more full you are. And the more full you are, the more this begins to flow out of you so that those around you are, listen, refreshed by the presence of God in you. That, that's a compelling vision for our lives. That the people you come in contact with are actually refreshed by the presence of God from you. Listen, that has always been God's plan. It has always been God's plan to manifest his name and his presence and his glory through his people. I wanna take some time this morning to show you the way in which God has always intended to do this in the hopes that seeing this in the whole storyline of the Bible would actually allow you to not simply see this as an invitation of Jesus or a call of Jesus, but a vision for your life from this invitation of Jesus. So when you begin at the very beginning, when you go to Genesis chapter one, you see the Garden of Eden, which was the place in which God dwelt. God's presence was there. And the reason Adam and Eve were so satisfied there and had no other longings unsatisfied is because they lived in the presence of God. They, they lived perfectly in the presence of God. Adam and Eve did not long for anything they did not have. There was, there was nothing in them that's like us, this constant factory of desires where we always want something we don't have. And when we get that thing, we want another thing. Adam and Eve didn't have that. They were completely satisfied in the presence of God because they were created to be satisfied with God. And it tells us in Genesis 2.10, listen to this. It says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided into four rivers. Just like it is in John 7 and all throughout the prophetic literature of scripture, a river is almost always a symbol of the presence of God. So I want you to picture this with me. The entire Garden of Eden is being sustained by this river that is flowing into it. And that symbolizes the presence of God. So God is sustaining Adam and Eve and everything by his presence. But why is it that once that river goes in to water everything in the garden, it divides into four different rivers and leaves Eden? It's because from the very beginning, God's desire has always been that his presence would spread to the ends of the earth. This is where Habakkuk got his grand vision in Habakkuk 2.14. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. 
It has always been God's vision that in the same way the waters cover the sea, so it is the glory of God would spread to every corner of the earth and everyone would enjoy his presence. That's why those four rivers are leaving Eden. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened is, and the worst part, the consequences of their sin is they were removed from the Garden of Eden. Why? Because God could not have the presence of sin in the garden. And so he removed them and then everything began to spiral. It doesn't take long before there's murder and envy and hate and jealousy. All of that stuff is happening. Why? Because there is this massive void in the heart of every person because they're no longer satisfied in the presence of God. So here Adam and Eve are removed from God's presence and God could have left them there. But let me tell you the most amazing thing about God. God knew that every human being born after that would still long for his presence. He knew that because he created you in his image to only be satisfied with him. And so what does he do? Well, from the beginning right there all the way to the end of scripture, he pursues us like he does in John 17. And he invites you to come back into his presence. You see this all throughout scripture. You think about the way in which God led his people in the Exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. Well, it was his presence as a cloud that led him in the day and his presence like fire that led him at night. He gave them a, a tabernacle that was temporary and could move with them. Why? Because everywhere they went, he wanted them to have access to his presence. He then later built them a temple. And it says that when Solomon dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles 5, glory filled the temple. The temple was filled with the glory of God. It was always God's intention that his people have access to his presence. Now, Ezekiel chapter 10 tells us that as the people failed to walk with God, God removed his glory from the temple. And really, in a sense, you end the Old Testament with the glory of God, the presence of God being this elusive thing that God's people are longing for, but because of their constant sin and rebellion, it has been removed from them, and there's absolute chaos. Until you open the New Testament, and John chapter 1 says this, listen, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So right there, all of a sudden, you see that God is sending Jesus Christ, the very presence of God, the tabernacle, who will bring his presence to us once again. And then in John 2, in the next chapter, Jesus says this, tear this temple down and I will build it in three days. They said, you're crazy. It took us hundreds of years to build, build this temple. You're not going to repair it in three days. And it says he was talking about his own body. Why? Because Jesus was saying, I am the temple of God. I am where the very presence of God is dwelling and you can destroy this temple, but I promise you, I will rebuild it in three days at my resurrection. And he did. And then you come to the early church and you see the way in which God filled his people with his spirit and sends them out and calls them the temple of God. Every one of us, listen, the temple of the living God. We are the place in which God's presence is dwelling. So God has chosen to take this glorious presence, which we were overwhelmed by when we sang a moment ago. And he said, my plan is this. I'm going to take my presence and put it in you. That's his plan. And you turn to Revelation 22 and the chapter begins with God recreating Eden on earth. That's heaven. Heaven is God recreating Eden. And it says that there's a river flowing there. And once again, God's people are in God's place enjoying his presence. You realize the Bible ends the exact way it begins. God's people enjoying his presence. 
presence. Somehow last night at the dinner table, the topic of heaven came up. One of my kids asked a question about heaven, and one of the questions was, are we going to sleep in heaven? To which Andrea and I at this stage in life said, God, I hope so. Um, that's kind of like, the, that's heaven. Like that eight-hour sleep would be just amazing. And so we just began to talk about like, what do you do in heaven? And I think one of the things we fail to realize is that, that ultimately heaven is God recreating Eden on earth where we will enjoy the work and we will enjoy the company of one another and we will feast together and we will celebrate together and we will be active together. It's life as God intended it to be. And listen, where this whole earth is headed is, is back to where it begins. Do you know, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that you were created for God's presence, but sin has separated you from your presence. Therefore, you're always going to be longing for something that you don't have. And so God, in his love, longing to bring you back into his presence, has sent his presence to live among us, to die for us, so that you might once again enjoy the presence of God, not because of your goodness, but because of the goodness of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, perfectly righteous, dies on your behalf, taking upon your sin, so that now, listen, you can at any moment walk boldly into the presence of God and make your request known and find help and find satisfaction. Why? Because Jesus made a way. Right now, you can go into the presence of God at this very moment. You know why we got on our knees in the service? Because we're going into the presence of God. It is in that place in which every longing of your heart is filled. And that's the gospel. That Jesus came to bring you back into his presence. And that's John 7. Church, that's John 7, that God has created you to be satisfied with him and then to spread his name to everyone around you through the overflow of God's presence in you. Think about this in terms of Acts chapter 1 and 2. So we leave, in a sense, the Gospels by saying, go into all the earth and preach the Gospel to all nations. But then we turn to Acts 1, and it says that Jesus commanded his disciples not to go anywhere until the Holy Spirit came upon them. He says this in Acts 1.8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So what does the church do? Well, in Acts 1, they wait. And they pray and they seek the Lord and they read the Bible. It actually tells us that. And then they see some areas in which they need to obey and they obey. They just do the stuff that Christians do. They pray, they read the Bible, they obey, they gather together. That's Acts 1. It's just them experiencing the Lord. But nothing external is really happening until Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And then when the Holy Spirit falls, what happens? They get filled up with the fullness of God and thousands of people get saved. Jonathan Edwards in The Great Awakening talked a lot about this idea. He talked about this idea of fullness and fulfillment. What he saw happen in The Great Awakening is this. He saw what he would say is a revival of religion led to a great advancement of Christ's kingdom. So what he would say is that the way you know whether a revival is authentic is not because it just stirs up the people of God and fills the house of God. It always leads to people getting saved. Like that's a real revival. A real revival always leads to the advancement of Christ's kingdom. So Jonathan Edwards was trying to discern with all of this stuff going on, 
if this is real, and his conclusion was what's happening is people are getting full of God and the kingdom is being advanced. Think about Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. We love this passage. It's what I preached in view of a call when I came here. Now to him who is able to do abundantly beyond anything we ask or think, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever, amen. We love that verse. Like we want that, right? We want God to do more than we ever ask or think. But we always forget verse 19, the verse before that. When Paul prays this, he prays that the church would be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do more than we ever ask or think or imagine. How is it that God does those things in your life that are greater than you can even imagine? Like, how is it that God helps you over that addiction? How is it that God helps you in those circumstances? How is it that God accomplishes things through you as you begin a new school year, a new church year? How? Well, the answer is this, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, that's the way in which he has always intended to do this. And so I think about, as a pastor, about evangelism and, and how can we motivate people to be more evangelistic? And I, I think I'm far enough in that I've realized that, that guilt as much as I wished it worked, doesn't. Like I can't just keep piling more guilt upon you because you already feel it. And I would say almost all of us feel deficient in this area above any other area. This is like the one area for some reason which is so difficult for us. I think some of it is what my pastor friend said. I think that when Jesus plays a small part in our daily life, we're just not talking about him very much that we do talk about other things a lot. Why? Because we're more full of those things than we are of God. I think that's legitimate. I also think maybe that we have overcomplicated something that's meant to be really simple. Like you're afraid you're gonna forget one of the points in the gospel tracks. You're gonna misquote one of the verses. And I think all of our gospel training is good. Yet at the same time, it does make you super scared. You're gonna miss like that one thing. And then someone's gonna pray and go to hell because you missed a point. Maybe you don't have an answer for something that they're going to, I think, I think some of that's true, but you know, I think, I think the main thing is this, is we have made this massive distinction between God's call on my everyday life and evangelism. Like really, here's my life right here today. Okay. Like going home and being with family and then getting kids ready for school tomorrow. Like all that's my life. And then there's this thing over here called evangelism that I never do feel really guilty about. And it's like, what is it? But maybe John 7 is the answer to all of things. Maybe God's intention has been that evangelism is not this other thing I have to do. It is the byproduct of a life filled with God. Like, what if that's it? Like, I'm just, I'm, when we were on our knees praying, the thing I was most overwhelmed with when I stood up here and called us to pray is the sea of students that I'm seeing over here. And so what if what God wants to do is he, he wants to give you a new vision for your life that includes, first of all, you going after God like you've never gone after him before and, and, and coming to understand what it's like to just be satisfied in Jesus. And then maybe God's desire, once you are filled with him, is that you would be overcome with the zeal of the Lord like Jesus was in John 7, knowing that it's going to cost you something. You can't help but to talk about it because you're full of it. And maybe it is that, that, that as you get filled with God, you start to see people like Jesus sees them. And so all of a sudden, every person that passes you, you realize that's a soul. 
created by God that's desperately thirsty and is drinking from something, most likely not Jesus. And it's going to not only disappoint them in this life, it's going to send them to an eternity separated from the presence of God in hell. And is there literal fire in hell? Yes, but what's worse than that is that God isn't there. That's the worst part, is that all of the goodness of God has been removed. Listen, the only reason anybody in this earth experiences anything good is because the common grace of God in which he bestows a little goodness upon all of us. You remove that, all of earth is hell. And every single soul you pass is thirsty for something And you've been drinking from that. And God wants you to drink so much from that, but you cannot help but to tell them, I know what you're looking for, and it's not found in me, but it is found in the person of Jesus Christ. This This is this grand vision of our life. Can you imagine if you captured this vision for your life, if this became a reality? Like my concern is not a grand vision for our church. The way we get a grand vision for our church is a bunch of individual members getting a new vision for their life, which includes being filled with God, going after him, and then going after people. Let me just say a couple of things practically. As we're praying about this and asking the Lord to make this clear on how we move from this place and and what we do from here, the first thing is this. We are uh, having all of our community groups, including our college community groups, and uh, our students are going to be doing this later in the year. Our adults began this morning and will begin a 10-week study called Every Neighbor, Every Nation. Because we really believe that the vision God has called us to is to not... Stop being aggressive until every single neighbor and every single nation comes to know Jesus. That's the vision, right? And, and, and let me just say, your neighbor is your responsibility. Don't, don't invite me to your house to share the gospel with your neighbor. I'm not coming. I'll come eat, but I'm not going to share the gospel with your neighbor because they're your neighbor. And I have my neighbors. So you do your neighbors. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of my neighbors. And, 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 and I will realize that every neighbor is my responsibility. And all the nations are our responsibilities. We work together as we give, as we pray, as we go to reach the nations. But we're going to be doing this thing called Every Neighbor, Every Nation, in which we work out practically what this looks like in our lives. So I just want to plead with you, if you're not in a community group, to get involved. And let's work this out as a church. I want to say practically, can you get in the habit of, of inviting someone to church every week? I know, I know. That the New Testament mission of God is not everybody come and see, it's go and tell. I know that, okay? I also know that when you invite someone into a church filled with the Holy Spirit and they see the authenticity of the worship and they hear the gospel preach, that does something in someone's life. You believe that? Like, do you believe that a lost person in this room, that would affect them in some way? Like, God was here as we were singing, like this, and I feel like, like I'm at a, like at least a B minus right now on my sermon. Like I'm, this is, I'm just saying like the gospel is being presented. God is in the place. There's joy in this place. Like just be inviting people into this place. And I know there's not any seats over here, but there's some over here. So there's room to just make that a regular habit. My dad used to always say, Every member should come to church every Sunday with a Bible in one hand and a lost person in the other. And by the way, he meant one of these. Like not a phone, like he meant like an actual one of these. Think about like, I'm coming every Sunday, I got one of these and I got someone I just, I just brought to church. The last thing I'll say to you is this. God is calling you to pursue him 
to be filled with him, listen, and then just make intentional effort to be in the presence of lost people. Do you know how many times Jesus just ate with people and reclined with people and spent time with people? No one's going to get saved by eating with you. But they are going to get a little taste of what it's like to be in the presence of God as that is flowing through you. And that's the vision that Christ would be magnified in us and Christ would be magnified through us. I'll close with this. I just keep thinking about 2 Corinthians 5.20 where it says we are ambassadors for Christ as though God was making his appeal through us. (laughs) God is making his appeal through us. What an unbelievable thought. And so our invitation this morning is simple. Jesus has given invitation. So we give an invitation every Sunday. And the invitation is, first of all, to make a new and a fresh commitment to go after Jesus, to confess any sin that's hindering you from being full of the presence of God. And the second invitation is some of you, I really believe, need to just get on your knees this morning and say, God, would you use me? Like this semester, would you use me in this season of the church? Just use me to lead somebody to Christ. God, I I want that to be a reality in my life. God, I want to go after you. I want to go after people. God, just help this to be a reality in my life. And so in just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a great song. Pastors and prayer partners will be here. They would love to pray with you about anything, pray over you, confess a sin. You can just ask for prayer for anything. And there's a place here for you to just kneel. The reason is, is because the Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden his heart. Whatever God is telling you to do today, you do it today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.